Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Mary Beth O'Connor. Now, Mary Beth has quite the story to share. It's kind of in the theme of last week's episode where we talked to someone who had a a very rough childhood, a very rough upbringing. Uh, In the case of Mary Beth, it extended beyond childhood into her 20s and and in the beginning of her 30s as well. But uh, I... It, it's a it's a story about how you know you can overcome life's obstacles. You can overcome the things that that happen to you, and you can overcome the things that you you know the mistakes that you make um, yourself. You know some of the times the people that I talk to overcome some some really rough things that you know no fault of their own. Mary Beth this week had a really rough childhood. She grew up with a um, a mother who was was not all that uh, supportive and, and nurturing. She spent uh, the first little bit of her her life, I think, the first six weeks or six months, one of the one of the two, um, in uh, in a, a nunnery because her mother had given her up briefly. Uh, then uh, you know her mom was all kinds of different things, but uh, it kind of it kind of landed where her mom was with a an abusive. Um, husband and uh, and that abuse kind of extended to the entire family uh, Mary Beth kind of had to to figure out how to navigate that and then in her her teen years she found alcohol and then alcohol was a gateway into drugs and those drugs kind of extended from her her teen years all the way up to her, her early 30s so we're going to talk about that that drug use her drug of choice at the time was methamphetamine uh, we're going to talk about exactly what that that did to her life she was relatively lucky when it comes to that um, because she was able to get out of it and at the same time while she was using she was still able to go to college and get a degree so i do think that that you know sets her apart from from some people who kind of spiral into this but she certainly was was spiraling in a lot of different ways um but uh, her story really begins at uh, at 32 when she decided to go to to rehab uh, we're going to talk about exactly what uh, that uh, recovery looked like and how it looked different for her than a lot of other people how she kind of created her own plan uh, we're going to talk about after she got out of recovery after um, she you know started getting on her feet getting her first you know big girl job so to speak that she decided to go to law school and when she went to law school uh, she she excelled there and then she decided after you know working in uh, you know a law firm for a while to become a a judge and not just any judge a, a administrative law judge in the federal circuit so you know the the title of this is kind of a, a brash one but it's the title of her book that she wrote talking about her life she went from junkie to judge which is a a huge thing Uh, we're going to talk about what that's like and and you know being somebody who was a former drug addict and then becoming a judge is is quite the leap Uh, but you're going to see the the steps that she took to to get to that point 
And uh, I think that just goes to show you that anything is possible, no matter where you're at now, no matter you know what life is throwing at you now. Dedication, hard work, and can get you a lot, a lot of places. So this is a really powerful conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Here is my interview with Mary Beth O'Connor. I'm here today with Mary Beth O'Connor. Mr. O'Connor, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, well, hardest question of the evening. Just introduce yourself. Ah, um, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so Mary Beth O'Connor. Um, I uh, I grew up in Central Jersey. In I was born in actually in, ni- in 1961. I'll date myself, but it'll come up later anyway. Um, and um, and actually, things were bad before I was born because my mother um, and when she found out she was pregnant, my father left her, and they weren't married. And this was like a huge deal in Irish Catholic 1961 New Jersey. And there was this whole rigmarole thing that happened at the Catholic Church Center to Philadelphia to have me. And they pretended she was in Boston and were rounding her mail just to sort of hide this terrible secret. Um, and when I came home, I was actually left at a nunnery. I didn't go live with my family for the first six months. Uh, and then, um, and I will say, even under my mother's version of the story, she visited once in a while. Okay. <laughs> mm. um, but I did move in with her after that. She married my who, who became my sister's dad uh, and I lived with them for till I was six and then with a great grandmother for three years but mostly my mother she wasn't connected you know she wasn't interested there wasn't that sense of having someone who saw you or paid attention to you um, and she could be violent but uh, but things got a lot worse when she married my violent stepfather when I was nine and so there was a lot of you know physical abuse sexual abuse and just a lot of walking on eggshells one of the stories I think is a good example is that when I realized I was living with a crazy person, <laughs> um, I, I taught my little sister that when we emptied the dishwasher, we had to put the dishes away one dish at a time so they didn't clack. Like that was sort of the level of strain. And so that was really the initial setup that um, that was a real challenging way to sort of start my life. Yeah. And when I was kind of reading a little bit about you, you know, I, I read about you being left at the nunnery and that's i wasn't sure whether you know you were then adopted out but it sounds like your your birth mother is the one that actually took you you back in it wasn't necessarily a good situation but it it was your your mother right that's right yeah she did take me back once she married she got married then i moved in with them and that was when i was about six months old yeah, yeah. well that makes a little more sense because it's how the way that i took it was that you had been adopted but then this family was not all that great i was thinking why in the world did why why did they adopt her then that doesn't sound too fun but <laughs> but but yeah i mean i, I want to kind of i, I want to obviously you know your story has a lot of of uh, triumphs over trauma that's that's part of your your book title but i want to kind of just talk a little bit more about um your childhood and kind of what it it led to uh, talk just a little bit more about, uh, I guess, growing up and some of those hardships. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I will say a, a couple of things. One is when we lived with my great grandmother for those three years, although that was really um, a stressor, be, you know, being suddenly not living with either one of your parents. And I had a sister, a little sister by then. At the same time, my great grandmother was uh, she wasn't overtly affectionate, but she was she was she wasn't creating chaos. I mean, she was a calm person. She, you know, she fed us. She dressed us. We weren't in danger with her. So I did have those couple years that were relatively peaceful. 
Um, but then we moved in with my stepfather and it was like moving into a universe of new, new, new rules, you know, and, and at first I thought, okay, new rules, right? I, I can figure this out. And so, for example, it was weird things like we weren't allowed to be barefoot in the house. Well, my whole life we'd been barefoot in the house in the summer, but okay, okay, we're not going to be barefoot in the house. I can, I can adjust, you know. Um, but over time I realized that the rules were ever changing and there was no consistency and you could do, let's say the same thing nine times and it was ignored. And the 10th time it was like the worst thing done in the world and you would get a beating. Mm. And so it just sort of started to dawn on me that I was not only living in a much more violent household, but also that I had no control over it. That even, even though I could try my best efforts and maybe reduce the violence, there was no way to get away from it because it really wasn't that it wasn't about me in the end. It was about him. And that was a tough uh, realization to have. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to these type of things, you always, you know, it's easy to see when it comes to the, uh, you know, your, your stepfather, the issues, a lot of people, you know, it's easy to try to place blame on, on your, your mother too. But I wonder, I always like to kind of, ask this question with your mom was was there issues there too or was she kind of was she a victim of of this abuse as well I mean, he was definitely very violent with her. And he, I mean, it, it was, you just never knew. One time there was, I remember him, uh, he had her up against the wall on the porch and he was choking her. And her, I mean, her eyes were popping out. And that was one of the few times that the police came. It was the only time when the police came that they actually took him away. Uh, all the other times that they would come, and it wasn't frequent, only when things sounded really bad when the neighbors called the police. But when they came the other times, it was more like, oh, go, go away and cool off you know it was just get out of the house and cool off that one time was bad enough that i think they arrested him that was my understanding but i never knew what happened from it because i certainly wasn't going to ask you know mm -hmm. um but but yeah i mean my mother my mother was uh, under a lot of stress and strain herself and and she did after that time go to her fa her parents and tell them what was going on she told me that her sister my aunt you know verified that and her, my grandparents although they were generally good people um it was really more uh, they, they they didn't offer to help her get out you know it was like you've already been divorced once you know you need to try to make this work i don't think they appreciated the severity of the situation but at the same time um they didn't back her up on the one time that i know of that she tried to get their help yeah you, you never exactly know what was happening at that at that point for sure and i i wonder too obviously we're, we're talking triumphs over trauma but Unfortunately, this is not where the, the trauma ends. Then after this, I, I think it was sometime in, in your early teen years that you began experimenting with alcohol that then led to some other things. To, so at your, your comfort level, talk a little bit about that time. Yeah, I mean, so for me, uh, my first drug was alcohol, which was common in my day. And it was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine, which was also <laughs> common. You know, it's a very sweet sort of entry level drug. Um, my girlfriend, I was 12. My girlfriend stole it from her sister and rode over, over on her banana seat bicycle to the house. You know, and we drank it in the basement. And what I noticed, what caught my attention was that this makes me feel better. You know, I felt like like a weight was lifted off my chest, like I could breathe deeper than I we were giggling on the floor and being silly. And I just felt 
a happiness and a lightness that I wasn't used to, that I couldn't even remember if I had ever experienced it. And so that really captured my attention. This is a positive experience. You know, I want more. And I really pursued it right away. I mean, I was always trying to make opportunities to get alcohol. I was, I would even steal from my stepfather, even though that was dangerous. That's how much I wanted it. Um, but you're right. I, I quickly also added in other drugs. I started smoking weed by 13 and I was doing pills, you know, maybe the next year I did a lot of LSD my sophomore year of high school. Um, and then when I was 16, I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And I was shooting meth within six months at 17 and I was in full bore addiction when I graduated from high school. So it was a quick and vicious um, turn for me. Two things when it comes to that. The first one being you know, you talked about how much you had to walk on eggshells with, with your stepfather. And then we're talking about adding drug use, which doesn't normally lead for somebody walking on eggshells. So how was that in the house once you were a, a drug user? Were you still able to balance one, both of those things? Or you just didn't care as much anymore? Or what'd that look like? Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting cycle. I mean, on one hand, sometimes with my stepfather, I would feel really sort of De depleted and debilitated and depressed. Like I remember there were times I wasn't getting a shower or washing my hair. Um, on the other hand, sometimes I would get angry and I would, you know, get really verbally aggressive with him. And I was much smarter than he was. And I could really, you know, make him look like an idiot if I wanted to. And, and I would do it at times, even though I knew he was going to hit me because it was sort of a way to assert myself, you know, like mm -hmm. I'm a real person, you know, I'm, I, 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 it was a way to stand up. But I also did also at times try to deflect him from my sister or my mother. I mean, I was the oldest child, right? And so you feel a responsibility to the younger siblings to try to protect them. And so sometimes I would intervene or say things to him to, to redirect his attention away from somebody else. And so it was always that complicated dynamic of, you know, at different points in my in my teenage years and my childhood, I would react in different ways. And even from one week to the next, I might, I mean, you know, teenagers, right? <laughs> There's also normal hormones playing and you go bopping from one uh, different uh, mood to another. Um, but for for me, the, the drugs made it easier in a way because I didn't care as much. Um, and I also just started leaving the house as much as I could. So I wasn't home as much. And it's also into my teen years where now I'm allowed, you know, to take my bike and go further away, you know, without anybody else. And eventually people were driving. And so it was a, a separation uh, from the house. I wasn't around as much. And there was an emotional it was um it was sort of a, a numbing it was an emotional numbing so what he did even though i didn't like it, it it didn't cause the same kind of um intense emotional reaction that it had when i was younger yeah that that makes sense and i, I also wonder too i don't know too much about you know the different times that the drugs were were, were were popular so i've, I've talked to you know a, a dea agent from the seventies. And of course he was in Miami. He was dealing with, you know, cocaine and, and all that kind of stuff. From my understanding, you know, this given your age, this puts you, you know, late seventies, early eighties, methamphetamine, was that a relatively new drug at the time? Because I heard, heard, you know, when it really got bad, it was like the nineties, no, these two thousands. So I didn't really know there was a lot of people doing meth in, uh, in, in the seventies and eighties. 
Yeah, so this would be the mid to late 70s. And meth had been around, you know, before, but it wasn't around in volume. And so in central Jersey, at least, and a lot of this can be geographic as to what drug is popular in which part of the country at what time. But in my central Jersey area, it was suddenly flooded with meth for the first time. There were biker gangs that were making it out in rural western Pennsylvania, and it was being sort of imported into the area um, in volume. And there was... People were aware of that, that this was this new thing, you know, wow, you know, meth. I heard meth is coming and um, and you, you know, you can smoke, you can uh, snort it and you can shoot it. And it was a versatile, a versatile drug. And also there was the mythology that it wasn't addictive like heroin. So, we, you know, we viewed heroin as being sort of the drug that was going to take you down. And in reality, within six months of meth being sort of readily available, there were a lot of people that were going down from it so but you are right it was really the first mass wave of meth that i was participating in yeah and i think you kind of already answered it but when it comes to to drug use it's easy to to say hey it's because of all the things that were happening at, at home is is that what you attribute this to i mean it's kind of the the classic nature versus nurture thing do you think that that was something that based off of, you know, the way you were raised or, you know, was it something that was kind of built into your, your family dynamic to begin with? Well, I mean, there was some gambling addiction in my family, but not substances until me and my sister. And I will also say that the data shows that if you have a trauma, traumatic childhood, especially repeatedly, not like a one-time event, but repeatedly, your odds of developing a substance use disorder are three to four times as high. Mm -hmm. And so there is a very strong connection between trauma and, and substance use. There's also a connection between trauma and mental health, right? I mean, I it turned out I had PTSD and I didn't even know know it. And I, I had severe anxiety. I had some OCD like tendencies. I had sort of, I liked things in a certain pattern, you know, I had to do things a certain way. So there was a lot of um, mental stress that was showing up in multiple ways in my life at that time. So uh, definitely, definitely it felt like it solved the need. You don't pursue it if it's not working for you in the beginning, right? In the beginning, it seemed to help. Um, it's just that over time, and it wasn't that long of a time for me, it became a problem. Uh, most people who use drugs use drugs, you know, intermittently, sporadically. Um, when people pursue them, there's usually a pain source or a mental health challenge going on underneath. Yeah. So what, what was happening during this time? I know that you kind of, you, you began the process of getting help in, in your early thirties. So through your, your twenties, what, what were you doing? I, I always like kind of turn of phrases and I saw on kind of your bio that you, you said, I, I don't remember it. The opposite of climbing the corporate ladder, you were worked my way, yeah, worked my worked way down, down the corporate ladder. Right, right. So what were you doing during that time? So, um, so I had always done well in school. Like that was the one positive I always had. And it was really a place where I was seen and sort of like my natural characteristics were valued. Um, and so by the time my drug use got really, really bad in high school, it was really my senior year. And I already had most of the grades that college would consider, right? I mean, you know, they don't see your last semester grades because you're, they've already accepted you. And so I did go from my central Jersey town to California for college. I ended up graduating from Berkeley. Um, and I did 
better and I, I always emphasize better and good aren't the same, but I did much better for the first three and a half years. Like mostly I was using alcohol, sometimes cocaine, sometimes pills, mostly on the weekends. Sometimes it rolled into the week, always chaotic, always, you know, doing crazy things and out of control and to excess, but more contained. But then I had this, um, I was kidnapped by three men and held and raped for six hours when I was in college. And then I moved in with a violent boyfriend. And so it, I just couldn't even hang on as well as I was after that. And so I started doing meth again on a daily basis in January of my senior year for college. And yeah, I didn't get sober until I was 32. So there, it was a really long haul for me. It wasn't a short-lived um, substance use disorder. It was a long haul. So it sounds like, I mean, you were, you were relatively functioning, which makes it even harder. So what made you decide in your early thirties that it was time to, to start looking at, at options and, and, and breaking away from, from the habits? Yeah, it was really a combination. I mean, I wasn't really functioning very well at all. I, mm. I, I couldn't hold a job because I, I couldn't get there. So that working my way down the corporate ladder is really that every job I have was like less money and less responsibility. And I held it for less time. My last job, mm. I had a Berkeley degree in good grades. And my last job was word processing. And I could only hold it for nine months. And so I just professionally, I was, you know, depleted, but it was more much more than that. I was I was really in despair. I was really exhausted. I felt trapped, you know, saw no way out of this misery. And then my partner was ready to throw me out. And so it was all of these things in combination that made me finally say, you know, well, what if I go to rehab? You know, and so will you not throw me out if I go to rehab? And so that was sort of the impetus. It was really that combination of things hitting me from all sides and really just being so depleted that. Um, that I couldn't move, I couldn't move forward from where I was at all. And I, I was willing to at least conceive of the possibility of trying, trying. Yeah. And I, so this is late eighties, early nineties, maybe it's, yeah, it's, I went into rehab in 93 and 93. Right. And I, 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 I mean, I feel like there's more options now, but I know that back then there, there wasn't a ton and the options that were available were not ones that I guess were super conducive to you. So you, you started creating your, maybe your own pathway. Talk about that. Yeah. So when I went into rehab and it was a longer term program, it was a women's program. Um, it was 90 days minimum, although I stayed five months. Um, you know, in my mind, I'm just going to a medical facility, but it turned out that it was a 12 step house exclusive. So, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all the anonymouses are 12 step programs. Um, and they're a good fit for, um, for many, but they're definitely not the right fit for everyone. And they were not a good fit for me at all. And for multiple reasons. Um, but my rehab have swore up and down. This is all there is. There's no other option. And so it was really a shock to me to find out that I was only being offered one thing and that it wasn't going to work. Um, but but I, I really thought about it. I mean, I believed them at first because they were the experts, right? And that's what they told me. And so I, I decided, you know, what am I going to do? It's, it's not going to work for me. And so I just decided to sort of, to, to, keep my ears and my mind open and look for the parts I could use. And so, I mean, I, I did all the homework in rehab. I participated in class. I read all of the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. I read all of the NA text and I listened at meetings, you know, is there any sort of strategy or technique that somebody's talking about that I think I could use? And I just sort of filtered everything for, do I think I can apply this? Do I think this will help me as an individual? And so that was the sort of the way I looked at it. 
And then when I got home, and I, I will emphasize for the younger people like you, it, there's it's 94 now, there's no Google, okay? And so when I got home from rehab, I thought, is it really true that there's no other options? And I got my car and I went to the library <laughs> to do the research. And it turned out even in 1994, there were other options. Um, there was Women for Sobriety, which still exists. There was Rational Recovery, which is mostly smart recovery today. There was... SOS, which exists a little bit basically is life ring secular recovery today. And, and so I was first of all, like relieved, well, phew, okay, people have done it other ways. That was a real, um, a real relief to, to me to know I wasn't creating a, a totally, you, you know, unique path. Um, but, but I ended up not following any one program. I, same thing, I read all their books, I went to meetings, and I was just filtering it for which parts do I think could help. And um, today, we would call that a hybrid or patchwork plan where you mix different plans. But when I did it, I didn't know anyone who had done it. And I didn't have a name for it. I just did what I thought was going to be helpful to me. Um, and I will say I'm going to have 30 years sober in January. So I think I built a pretty robust foundation for myself. You certainly did. That, that's awesome. Congratulations for for that. I think of it, it I mean, I always like to kind of just for people who are listening, do you think that that's possible for a lot of people? I feel like the, you know, the accountability in a program or something like that is, is probably best for most people. I don't know. I feel like, you know, if you, if somebody's listening, like, well, I can just create my own, own patchwork. And, and I mean, that takes a special person to be able to actually hold themselves accountable to something like that. So do you think that that's really possible for a lot of people? Yeah. I mean, one of LifeRing's foundations is a personal recovery plan in, mm -hmm. in that what the plan that works for me might not work for you. But mm -hmm. I always emphasize that personal doesn't mean alone, right? Personal yeah. doesn't mean you have to invent it from scratch. Personal can mean reading up on all the, on the alternatives, doing, you know, doing the research, filtering the ideas. LifeRing has a workbook that will help people build an individual plan. It's very detailed. It's very robust. Um, and the other thing is that most people most people do, I think, ultimately know, well, that's definitely not a good fit for me, but this other program is better. And so I do encourage people to to read up on their options so they can find the right fit. And the other thing is that needs can change over time. So, for example, the structure of 12 steps, which is a positive for a lot of people, a lot of people like that structure and they do well because of the structure. But sometimes when they get like to two years, they start being interested in other ideas and they start looking for other options. And at that point, they may reach out and start pulling things from other programs or also going to other meetings. Like I'm on the board for She Recovers and Life Ring and both of them, a lot of our members also do 12 steps. And we're, we're okay with that because it's their plan. And if they think that combining 12 steps and she recovers is going to be the best foundation, we support it. So it's, it, it can be about what you do at first, but it's also about what you might do at some other point further down the road in your recovery. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense for sure. And I know six years into your recovery, that's when you decided to go to law school. Talk about, talk about that decision. Yeah, well, I mean, I will emphasize, um, and I think especially your friends and family are listening, how it was really important for me in the beginning to be realistic about where I was and what I was ready for and to prioritize what I was going to work on. Because my life, I broke my life in all kinds of ways. The list was too long for me to attack everything on day one, right? I had to 
prioritize. And one of them was my professional, you know, uh, getting back to work and trying to actually hold a job. Um, but I, I had, I was 32. I had an embarrassing resume. I mean, it was embarrassing to even have someone look at it. But also, I wasn't really ready for a career job. You know, I, I my first job when I got home was a part-time, temporary, low-level administrative job. Because for me to get up every day and go to work on time and stay all the hours and do a good job and do it the next day and the next. I was 32 and I had never done that in my life. I mean, I really needed to get that habit underneath me, you know, to get that, to get comfortable with that pattern. And then my second job was a permanent full-time mid-level administrative job. And then I got a supervisory job at a larger company where I got a promotion. And then, yeah, at six years sober, six and a half, I started at Berkeley Law. And so I, I like to use that as the example of, you know, it's progress, it's incremental improvement, right? It's not even like on day one, I thought I'm going to go to law school. It was really, let me find a job that I can actually and try to hold it, like do a good job and not lose it. That was goal number one. <laughs> and then it was thinking about, okay, well, what's the right next step? And how do I get the skills so that I can get hired for this right second job? You know what I mean? And then what's the right third job? It's that, um, it's just looking forward to what's the next goal rather than trying to leap too far in advance. Um, and then when I got out of law school, I, um, I worked at a big law firm and then I did uh, class action work for the federal government. And in 2014, when I had, I emphasized 20 years sober, <laughs> I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. And that's why I call my story, my book from junkie to judge, because it's that whole arc. And so, but it wasn't like I, I, I went into rehab and said, one day I'll be a judge, you know, that wasn't on my radar. It was really always about what's the right next step and how do I achieve that right next step? Yeah. And I, I want to get to that, that time, uh, on the bench, but I, I want to ask you too, because I always, I mean, I, I like to ask the questions that people would, would potentially be thinking when they're, they're hearing this story. And it's kind of a, you know, a tough one, a more awkward question, but what do you say to people who may be listening to something like this and think, well, what she had going for her and why she was so successful is she did get to go to Berkeley. She did go to college. I mean, that's a huge thing. We can't discount that. You know, there's a lot of people that are in the addiction world right now that, you know, they, they didn't go to college. They had kids in high school. They, you know, they're, they're come from a, a very impoverished background and they're, everything's just stacking up against them. You had something that was propping you up just at least a, a little bit when some people don't even have kind of that step stool. That's true. Um, I mean, I'll say a couple of things to that. One is that I know a lot of people in recovery that have gotten their college degrees. You know, oh, okay. a lot of people that I know in recovery have done that, even if they have to go to college part time and work. But, uh, you know, there's definitely um, success educational options for many people if that's what they want. But I will also say that being a judge, while it was an accomplishment and I'm proud of it, it's not the most important part of my recovery. It was my job, right? The, the joy of recovery is the lack of chaos, the lack of obsession, my mind being freed up to focus on other things besides, you know, just drug use, drug use, drug use. It's being able to be a good wife and a good aunt and be a productive member of society. And now to be able to be of service with, you know, I write articles and I do a lot of speaking and education about substance use. So, 
the judge thing, I, I, I mean, I'm proud of it, but it's not the core of my recovery. It's not the most important part of my recovery. But everyone I know that's gotten sober, that's has, they've all had forward movement professionally. It's just really a matter of what do they want. And, and sometimes it is about what's realistic. What can I actually, you know, get considering if I have three kids or I'm a single mom or whatever it might be. But um, even if you don't ever go to law school, that doesn't mean you can't have strong forward momentum um, professionally if that's what you want. And you certainly can have a happy and productive recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to ask you a little bit about uh, about the, the the judge side of things. I never assume, you know, the listener knows different different parts of, of, of anything. So I want to know for the listener, what is it? What's an administrative law judge? Yeah. That's different than than a lot of other things. Yeah, I mean, there's all different kinds of judges, right? I mean, Supreme Court judges and trial court judges. There's federal and state and traffic court judges. I mean, there's just a wide variety of judges. And I was a federal administrative law judge, and so what that meant was for the federal government, you work for a specific agency. And I worked for the Social Security Administration. And so I handled mostly disability cases or other cases about Social Security benefits, basically. So what do you, you know, you, you aren't a criminal judge, which it lends itself well for, for maybe parts of your, your past. So what do you think in the role that you had as a judge, how do you think that your past helped you, helped you succeed and, and I guess gain the perspective that you had? I mean, I definitely saw a lot of people before me who had substance use problems and especially mental health problems, a a lot of them with trauma histories. And so one of the bases for disability can be, you know, what your mental health, you know, uh, and um, and other challenges. And so I definitely saw people with overlapping issues or some um, overlap with their personal histories that I would learn about that were had some similarity to mine. And for me, you know, there was there is very specific law I was required to apply about substance use disorder and disability applications. I, I didn't. There was no wiggle room. I mean, it's very it's very specific. Um, and I would do that because that's you know that's my job and, and that's my obligation. But at the same time, it was I think came out more on the gathering of the information side that I was. I just um, I would just ask the questions in a neutral way to gather the information that I needed in order to apply the law. But I. I'm not looking at it from a judgmental standpoint or from a, uh, you know, a lack of understanding or um, thinking that they're not a good person because they have these struggles or any of those kind of things. So that that's sort of how it played out in the, um, in my job as a judge. I got you. And what made you decide that you wanted to, to write a book about about your story? So, um, so when I was appointed a federal judge, it was sort of a time of reflection, right? How the, how the heck did I do this? You know, go from shooting meth in, in my teenage years and, and go, becoming a federal judge. Um, and it was just a time to think about it. And I really started to think what, whether or not my story could be of use, you know, is there anything of value that I can add? And so one of the things that that caused me to do was to start reading memoir, a recovery memoir in particular, because that's what I was thinking about writing and I had actually not read a lot and so I started reading memoir and I realized a couple things one is that I felt that a lot of recovery memoirs sort of jump into the addiction they don't show where it came from and I really wanted to show the reality that is true for many people with a substance use disorder about the family environment that can 
that can cause you to pick up drugs to have that look like a positive solution. Um, and then I do have, you know, the stories about how bad it was in my in my substance use disorder. But then the other thing was a lot of memoir recovery memoirs at the end. It's like I went to a couple meetings and everything was great. And it's like, well, that's not how recovery works. <laughs> and so I wanted to show a more realistic example of what recovery looks like. And so 30% of my book is the first three years of my recovery. And it's the substance recovery, but also the interplay with the trauma recovery, because I actually had to do a lot more work on my PTSD and my anxiety and my trauma than I did on my substance recovery. Um, and, and I also wanted to show the example of what a non 12 step based recovery looks like, um, because the memoirs that I saw were all 12 step. Now, now don't get me wrong. The techniques that I use, 12-step people can use those too, and I'm sure many of them do, so it's broader. But still, I wanted to show an example of what um, someone who tackled their recovery in a different way, what that looks like. So it was sort of a lot of those reasons. And that's why the title is what it is, right? From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. I wanted to sort of capture the whole arc. Yeah, and I always like to ask this when I talk to people who, who wrote a book about their life. How open were you about about this before the book came out? You know, I, I have people that, you know, they're, everyone already knew the story in their life and they just, you know, got it on paper. And then I have people that shock their friends and family with with everything. So how open were you already and and how uh, how much did everyone know about it around you already? Well, I, I mean, certainly. um Friends usually knew that I had a drug history and that I had a, a child abuse history, a sexual assault history. But knowing that those sort of objective facts and knowing the details and being, you know, immersed in it the way it is in the book, most people didn't didn't have that. Um, we never had that immersive conversation. And so they knew the facts, but sort of from a distance. And so the book could be a surprise in that way, including for some of my family members. Um, but the other thing was that professionally, I, I mean, I, my book came out after I was retired. I was working on it uh, as a sort of a side project when I was a judge, in part because I, I needed to learn how to write a not basically like a novel, right? I'm, I was a legal writer. It's a very different writing skill to write a memoir. Um, and so professionally, I'd never, ex, uh, and never said anything about it until I, when I was a judge, I joined the board for life ring secular recovery, and I had to run it through ethics because it was an outside activity. And even then I just said, you know, I've been sober for, I don't know what it was, 23 years or something. And here's what I'm going to do. It, again, it wasn't specific. It was revealing it wasn't specific. And so my first big public announcement, which was before the book, was I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where I identified as a former judge and a former meth addict. And so that was the first time. As I say, once you come out in the Wall Street Journal, there's no taking it back. You know? hmm. What was that like? That's, that seems like you, that's relatively, relatively scary. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wrote the op-ed to talk about um, multiple pathways to recovery, you know, that it you know, doesn't have to be a faith-based approach. And so there were a lot of comments. It's interesting because I submitted it to the Wall Street Journal, the main uh, opinion piece editor, and he sent it over to the religion column. So they 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 put my op-ed, which they titled, um, I Beat Addiction Without God, uh, into the religion column because they wanted to get a lot of comments and they wanted to get a lot of discussion going. And so there definitely were, I think I had the second highest comment numbers of the year. <laughs> So there was a lot of discussion about it. Um, some people didn't think I should have ever been able to become a judge because I had had that history, even though, again, I had 20 years sober when I became a judge. It wasn't recent. 
I wasn't shooting up in my courtroom, you know. I mean, I was 20 years sober. But still, there was some some discomfort, let's just say, among some Wall Street Journal readers with my trajectory. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And I, I wonder, too, when you, when you wrote the book, I mean, what, what was what was your relationship with the person that you were writing about? You know, a lot of times with, with memoirs are people in, in two camps. They they're writing the books and, and it's you know therapeutic to get it down on paper and and work through work through some of those struggles. And there's some people that are, you know, so far have distanced themselves that it's almost like writing about somebody else and you just want to want to get it down for uh, for memory's sake. So what was your relationship with with that person? I mean, by the time I wrote the book, I, I, I did a lot of therapy when I got sober, um, really about 10 years. I, I, I knew that my trauma history was related to my substance use, and I also knew I had some anxiety. I didn't realize until I, the therapist correctly diagnosed me with PTSD. I didn't know you could have PTSD and not be a war vet. Like, I, I didn't understand that. Um, so I had done a lot of work uh, for the first 10 years of my sobriety on the trauma and my hit personal history and my childhood. Um, and But it had been, that had been a while. By the time I started writing the book, there was a gap in time where I hadn't really focused on it that much. And the book was a another opportunity to sort of really go back there and revisit it after I hadn't done so for a while. And there were a couple of things that came out of that. First of all, I, I really started to feel more proud of myself when I wrote the book that, you know, yeah, I hadn't always made all the best decisions, but at the same time, those were really challenging circumstances and I did the best I could. Um, but there's also, as um, in particular, there was one event in that kidnapping and rape that really had always weighed on my mind about whether I made the right decision. And when I wrote it up, uh, it really just sort of released any of that lingering second guessing by really making it clear to me that the, I, there was no other choice. I, I made the, the only realistic choice and it sort of let some of that some of that negative energy around it that I had been carrying, judging myself about a choice that I made um, was really freeing in a way. And so there were a lot of, there were, there were emotional things that went on during the running, including because you have to really put yourself back in the room and in the time and what exactly happened. But it ultimately in the end, there were some positive, um, there was a positive outcome from it emotionally and psychologically. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier about how, when you were writing the book, you, you were deciding whether there was, there was space for it out in, you know, the, the world, whether it was something that people would, would benefit from. So now that you wrote it and that, you know, you did decide that that was something that would be beneficial. What do you hope people gain from the book? I mean, I do have guidelines and checklists at the end to try to, you know, help people that are thinking about, you know, their early recovery, but also for friends and family. And I use the book as part of my advocacy work. And so I do do a lot of speaking and I do trainings about what substance use disorder is and what the treatment options are and the peer support and a lot of related topics. Uh, and I write opinion pieces on a variety of topics. And the book is the book is a way to sort of um, get get me noticed and get me to do, be able to do some speaking to audiences that I think uh, can benefit from what I'm talking about. I mean, when I talk, when I do a, let's say a conference or I'm speaking at an event, 
it is, I, I always think about who's the audience and what, what can I say that will be most useful to that audience? And that is sort of how I thought about the book. I didn't want to write a book that was already out there 25 times. What's, what's the point? I wanted it to have value. And so I am retired now. I'm not a judge any longer. And my sort of my retirement job, although my husband says I need to look retirement up in the dictionary because I don't understand what it means. <laughs> but um, it's really to try to, this is the first time that I'm really free to say everything and to really try to be of service and to be of use. And so the book is part of that. I really try to make the book um, show a real experience, uh, show it, you know, in a show it ultimately it's a positive story. I recovered from child abuse. I recovered from sexual assault. I recovered from domestic violence. I recovered from my substance use disorder. Uh, so it's positive in that way. Um, I hope it can help reduce stigma, you know, to know that someone can actually shoot meth and later um, be such a, you know, productive uh, a member of society that she ends up a judge. I hope that sort of opens people's minds to the possibility that the people that are really struggling in their substance use, that they're not bad people or th people we should just throw away and give up on, but actually if they can get help and get sober, they can have a beautiful life. So it's sort of all of those things that are playing um, playing in the picture for me. Well, I, I like that. And you're, you've kind of answered my, my next question. And it sounds like you're you're not doing very good at retirement. So what, <laughs> what, what, what's up, you know, what, what are, what are you up to these days? It sounds like you're doing a lot of conferences, that kind of thing, but talk a little bit about what uh, Mary Beth O'Connor's up to now. Yeah. So I do speak at a wide variety of events. So for example, I'm, I'm going to be leaving on Sunday to go speak at two fundraisers for a women's recovery um, house. They have two women's recovery houses. I do speak at conferences. I speak, I train judges and lawyers about substance use. Um, I speak at a, you know, I speak at a wide variety of events and the, the goal of that is really sort of education. I, I mean, a lot of things have changed in my almost 30 years of sobriety. A lot of our understanding of what substance use disorder is has changed over time and what recovery, what works for recovery has changed. And so part of it is to sort of catch people up to where we are. Like, for example, we're still a lot of people, they see on TV this idea that we have to wait till people bottom out. And actually, that's not only not true, it's very dangerous. And um, today we encourage people to intervene earlier in their substance use disorder. If you can break the cycle earlier, you're better off. Um, and I talk to them about how it's really a mental, it's a mental health disorder, right? It's a brain disease and you can have a mild, moderate or severe case of substance use disorder, just like a mild, moderate or severe depression. You know, it's the same thing. And let's get people to, um, to heal and, and, get help and and get out of that vicious cycle as soon as we can. So part of it's really that educational side as well. So how can people find the book and kind of keep up to date with you? Sure. Well, the book is, again, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And it's on Amazon and all the usual sites. Bookstores have it or they can get it. Um, I am on my, my website, junkietojudge.com, has the opinion pieces I've done and other information. I also am on Twitter uh, at MaryBethO underscore. And again, my Twitter feed, I don't argue with people. What I do is I post new studies that come out, new articles, um, some of my recovery thoughts. So I try to make my Twitter feed useful and informational. And so, uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. 
So um, the other thing is, if people want to reach out to me, you can message me through my website. I answer all messages. And if you forget my name, all you have to remember is the Junkie Judge, and you will Google me, and you will be able to find me. <laughs> gotcha. Well, that, that's quite the title for sure. Yeah, so I, uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, thanks so much. So that was Maybeth O'Connor. What a powerful story. I'm so glad she decided to share it with us. Like I said in the beginning, this just shows you that no matter what life throws at you, no matter what you've kind of thrown at yourself, it's possible to overcome. It's possible to put a lot of hard work in and, you know, become what you want to be. I think this is an extreme example. Not everyone is, you know, a, a meth addict that have kind of spiraled and not everyone wants to become a federal judge. But my goodness, if you can go from one point to another, as Mary Beth has, it shows you that maybe a smaller step for, you know, a, a dead end job and, and wanting to just get that promotion is is entirely possible. So I, uh, I really, really appreciate Mary Beth's time. I uh, I think that uh, you know her message is is one that a lot of people can learn from. You know, just like I said, not e even if it's not uh, to the extreme that uh, that uh, her path took, it should show you a lot of things that we can all learn from. So, thank you, Mary Beth, for being here. I urge you to go check out her book. The link to that will be in the show notes. Um, urge you to, to follow along with her. She she extended uh, the invite to uh, to reach out to her. Should you uh, should you find that beneficial? I'll put the uh, link to her website in the show notes as well. If this is your first time listening to this podcast. Appreciate you being here. Go leave a five star review on Apple and Spotify. That helps a lot. Leave a written review on Apple. Even more amazing. Go follow on Instagram. Not enough podcast. Not in a Huff with Jack Snuff on Facebook, jacksnuff.com. Lots of places to follow along. You'll want to do that because we've got a lot of amazing guests coming up, a lot of amazing guests in the past. So urge you to check out those two if you haven't. But uh, if you do nothing else, come back next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.